From NPM, the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, this is episode 145 of Ministry Monday. Ministry Monday is a weekly podcast about music, ministry, and liturgy produced by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, or NPM. What is NPM? NPM is a national association that fosters the art of musical liturgy. The members of NPM serve the Catholic Church in the United States as musicians, clergy, liturgists, and other leaders of prayer. For more information, go to npm.org forward slash join. Have a question? Email us anytime at ministrymonday at npm.org. Hello, and welcome to Ministry Monday. I'm your host, Amanda Bruce. Today is part two of a discussion on chant, featuring my conversations with Brother John Glassnap. Now, Brother John is a Benedictine monk of St. Meinrad Arch Abbey in southern Indiana, where he currently serves as the director of the newly formed St. Meinrad Institute for Sacred Music. Brother John earned an M.A. in Medieval Studies from Fordham University and a Ph.D. in Historical Musicology from Columbia University, specializing in chant. Last week, we explored the deep historical context of chant. But how do we apply chant to our modern, mostly American churches? How can we adapt chant to our needs? This is where the rubber meets the road, for lack of a better term. Brother John joins me from the Arch Abbey in St. Meinrad, Indiana. We're back for part two of our conversation today for Gregorian chant. So last week, just to recap, um, we spoke quite a bit about the historical context of chant, what chant truly means, um, and really some of the obstacles that we as pastoral musicians can find in our ministry trying to adapt and utilize chant in our our current settings. But we didn't really talk too much about a concrete kind of specified idea Idea. of Um, what we can do in terms of practical use of chant. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. Great. So before we start, I had an idea, if it's okay with you, I was hoping that you and I could discuss a little bit of terminology to kind of set the stage for today. Um, So that if someone is listening and they don't necessarily know what a certain term means, this kind of helps to fill in those gaps. So first off, what is a noom? Well, a noom simply is the very, very earliest notation. Uh, this comes up a lot in chant because since about the mid 20th century in the, the 50s, monks of Salem, who we, we may also want to talk about a little bit about what, who they are and why they're important, but the monks of Salem uh, uh, really championed the idea that the earliest, uh, the earliest notation, these nooms, which look very, very unfamiliar to us, they look like chicken scratch, uh, very hard to read, impossible to read actually. But, uh, but nonetheless contained little bits of performance nuance that uh, really brought out the artfulness of chant, 
uh, chant before that had been sung in a very like bomb, 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 robotic, every note was even manner. And uh, the monks of Solomon in particular, a, a scholar named Dom Cardine, wanted to show that the chant was in a, in a free rhythm, which was highly, highly expressive, very melodically nuanced. And he grounded that argument in this earliest notation. So what these nooms tell us uh, and what they don't tell us, they don't tell us pitch information. They don't tell us intervallic information. So we can't actually look at these earliest notations and really tell with any precision what the melody is. You were meant to already know the melody and it would just remind you of, oh, it goes up here, it goes down there and give you the basic shape of it. But it, you had to already know the, that melody. So this is still an oral tradition. But because you already knew the melody, you didn't really need very specific pitch information. What you did need was uh, little uh, reminders about how to pronounce certain consonants that may trip you up or go fast here, get quieter here, hold this note, this is the end of the phrase. And so that's what the earliest neumes taught. And uh, they were used primarily by conductors, not singers which is a bit of a point of confusion, but this is, it's become very fashionable in Catholic musical publications now to include the nooms, the earliest nooms, again, look like chicken scratches, just little squiggles, in addition to either modern notation or square notation, which you may see around a four line staff. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's great for a very specialized musician, but it can really scare off a lot of people who have not encountered what, uh, what a noom is or how to read them, unfortunately. So let's take that one step further. You've mentioned the monks of Solem. You mentioned it last weekend right. today. Yes, who, yes. Who, who are they? What did they do? So the monks of Solem were founded, well, the Abbey of Solem was refounded in about 1831, I believe, after the French Revolution by a group of diocesan priests. And they were, uh, the first generation to re-establish Catholic religious life in this new secular state of France. And they set about this, what they thought of as the restoration of the liturgy, restoration of monastic life, restoration of the French church by going back to what they imagined to be the early middle ages, which was the glory days. So the, the monks of Solem were unbelievably productive at uh, compiling sources, identifying historical sources, particularly for the liturgy, scouring Europe, finding the earliest chant manuscripts, printing facsimiles of these chant manuscripts, like in the middle of the 19th century where these facsimiles were, were quite rare and uh, invented the field of chant scholarship and really, and uh, over the course of the 19th and early 20th century, the Vatican gave them more or less the, uh, the official mandate really to produce editions of chant for the universal church. So virtually any edition of chant that you find uh, in any kind of liturgical music circle is going to have some relation either printed and or edited by the Abbey of Solem. The issue though is Salem had a very particular slant on the chant and uh, oftentimes we take that slant as, as gospel, but as historical research has continued to progress, again, largely thanks to the foundational work of the monks of Salem, 
we, the field has opened up and we realize there were other approaches or we now know other things. Uh, but, but when we think of chant, we think of it as being this very like uh, serene echo chamber, uh, warm sound. That's really of their making. That, that's not necessarily what chant sounded like. Uh, that's, that's kind of their aesthetic. So uh, we talked last week a little bit about some people might be put off because their parish might have carpeting or may not be a Gothic stone cathedral and therefore they can't get this acoustic. And that's not a deal breaker for chant. That, that is just, that's a style of performance, a, a kind of sound that these monks were after, but it is certainly not the correct way to perform chant. Good, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about that too in just a second about the you know, ways to adapt uh, chant to your space and to your situation. So that's, that's great. Um, so the last topic or the last term I wanted to go over is church modes, or I should say chant modes. What, what are the modes in terms of chant? Well, the modes are important because it's kind of like nooms. It's, it's a familiar idea to us, but also unfamiliar because it's so ancient. So many of us read modern notation, but we don't necessarily read nooms, which is still kind of notation, but it's just very, very old because chant is so old. Same with modes. Modes are kind of like keys. We have two modes, I mean, nowadays, major and minor, which really are still modes. Uh, but in the Middle Ages, they did not have major and minor. They had eight other ones to choose from, uh, more or less different based on octaves of all white keys, whether it begins on D to D or E to E, F to F, that, uh, et cetera. So this is partly why chant can sound a little bit weird and archaic, or if you're listening to a piece of chant and every now and then there's this note that is kind of seems a little bit out of place or a little bit like a little lower or higher than you would expect. That's because this is not using major, minor, modern tonality, uh, but these medieval modes, which have since gone out of favor. We, uh, except incidentally in jazz, we hear these in jazz. And even if you Google, I'm about to teach modes to this chant school here at St. Minard Seminary on Tuesday. And, uh, and if you Google church modes, most of the tutorials you get are by jazz musicians, <laughs> strangely. Really? And, they're, and they're going for a very similar sound to chant, which is a, a, a kind of a floating, uh, not, not quite so directed. We're not driving to resolution in the way that say Beethoven's fifth is. Uh, we, we have this very predictable arc of a phrase, which is all building, building, building until it finally resolves. In, in chant, we don't get those structures. Like jazz, we get more of a, a freeform uh, floating kind of, I, I don't know how you would describe it, but, uh, but, uh, but we don't get that, that sense of momentum quite so strongly. And it's because of the modes. Is there any special quality that is brought to chant because of the modes that we could be more aware of because of that? I think for sure. So last week we had talked a little bit about chant being the you know, supreme model, quote unquote, of sacred music. And we didn't necessarily talk about why theoretically. It's not just because chant is chant or it just arbitrarily has this authority. I think partially is that chant does something that other musics don't do. Uh, which again is an obstacle to it. it. It's in a different mode, say. But I think that, that that alterity, that differentness is a real advantage to chant. I think sometimes musically, it's not the worst thing to be jolted out of our comfort zone. And, uh, and, and chant can do that 
largely through the modes, largely through not not having anywhere else to be. Because when we're at the liturgy, we don't have anywhere else to be. And in our theology of the liturgy, all times are present. We celebrate the Eucharist as if it's the first Eucharist and we're still there, we're commemorating it. We're not, it's not, we're not reenacting it, we're there. Christ is physically there, same as he was before. So there's a whole theological, we call it the hicket nunc or the here and now, uh, where all times are present, just like in heaven, just the heavenly liturgy. And uh, musically, I think chant does a really good job of expressing that kind of timelessness and, uh, and, and that suspended feeling where we are just present in this kind of peaceful uh, awareness. That's how I experience it anyway. I love it. I've never considered that until we started talking about the modes and chanting in relation to that. And you're right. But do you feel it? Do you feel yes. it? I think when people do yeah. hear it, yeah, they, they maybe haven't like applied, you know, fancy music words to it or anything. But I think, I think that's something that strikes people immediately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Like they might, been, they, they may not say, I can really sense the, the mode right now, but you keep yeah, you there's no sit in gold emotion or there's no, you know, Right. Deceptive cadence or something. So, right. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. There's no deceptive cadence because there's cadences aren't really cadences, which is to say resolutions. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and modern music, just major minor music, just can't do that. It just can't. It's, it's built into major minor tonality, all modern music, that it must be, it's going somewhere, which means that you're slightly uncomfortable in the moment and you're hopeful for the future. Now there may be some liturgical, you know, rhapsodizing to do there, but I think I think chant just holding you still is something that is uh, is is really powerful and unique about chant. Yeah, I agree. So let's transition now. We've kind of established a couple of terms. Let's talk about specifics and solutions for obstacles facing modern day pastoral musicians today. So let's talk a little bit about instrumentation for chant. So. Of course, you know, traditionally, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but traditionally, of course, chant is typically done a cappella, but are there any ways to integrate instrumentation in pastoral, pastoral musicians into Gregorian chant? For sure, you know, we think of chant as a cappella, and certainly it can be that way, which I, for practical purposes, I think is a really strong argument for chant in parishes as well. If you don't have an organist, the organist is home with COVID or on vacation and it's the summer or you can't pay one. You with chant, you can have instrumental accompaniment or you or you cannot. Uh, you can, it, it's very, very flexible in that sense. But I mean, as much as we talk about practice, I'm a historian, so I'm constantly gonna push it back to history. You know, we the Gregorian chant is forged in the mid-eighth century in the uh, court of Charlemagne, also at the court of Charlemagne, or at least his dad, he's gifted a organ from the Byzantine emperor. So that, that, that uh, the first organ in Western Europe. So the introduction of the organ from, it's a Greek instrument originally, the introduction of the organ and the development of Gregorian chant are hand in hand, like within the same decade almost. So there was always the organ there. The early organs were not keyboards, they were slides. So they were, so you kind of pulled it out. So it really lent itself to, to some sort of drone or some kind of a simple uh, interval, like a fifth, an open fifth or something, 
which makes a lot of sense. It helps us not go flat. Uh, it, it makes it more interesting. Um, and uh, we, we use organs to that. We use a, lo a lot of other stringed instruments like here, cause we're kind of in this Appalachian Kentucky area. So we use a dulcimer, which is yeah. absolutely fantastic sounding. Uh, harps are also lovely. Uh, does a, can do a, a, a similar thing. It may be not a drone on a pitch, but you can fill out a, a chord or an interval. There's plenty, plenty of ways to, uh, to, to create some kind of a foundational line that, that grounds the chant and, and gives the choir a little bit of lift. And maybe if you are in that carpeted church, helps fill out the sound that may be getting sucked out by, by the acoustic of the space. You know, I have two examples too that I wanted to mention. So um, this past year on Christmas Eve, um, I had for instrumentation this year for Christmas was very minimal because of COVID. And so I just had a violinist and a cellist for the, the largest mass of the year, which of course is Christmas Eve, four o'clock or whatever your equivalent is. If you're listening Christmas Eve, the earliest mass, it's always the most crowded. And so um, we were doing the, we were doing a, a Gregorian chant Gloria um, for Christmas Eve. And to be honest with you, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't admit this on the podcast, but I didn't want to play the entire thing. I wanted to change texture. And I wanted mm. to give a different presence in the space. And so I, at the very last minute, leaned over to my cellist and violinist. And uh, right before mass started, I said, hey, at the, at the Gloria, can the cello play a D and the violin hold an A in this certain range? And you just hold it and just continue to slowly play it. And they did. And it created this kind of like sonic bass, if you will. It was just that open fifth that kept going throughout the entire Gloria. It, it was wonderful. Like it was- It's, it's that feeling of suspense still, of not yes. going anywhere, of yes. not needing to resolve. It just is. Right. And, and that can be very startling for people uh, because that's not how the world works. <laughs> and, and in that sense, the liturgy really is a different kind of space. And uh, I, I just, I love music that doesn't work the way we think it works, <laughs> especially, especially in the liturgy. Uh, right. And I, I know a lot of the focus is in the last, you know, since Vatican II has been on accessibility and participation and that, and, you know, and that's, that's wonderful. Um, mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I, I think a good musical jolt every now and then isn't the worst idea. It's a little jolt. Yeah, that's and, true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly, you know, uh, we talked about chant. Chant was never really only chant either. The earliest, uh, the earliest manuscript we have chant, we also have organum, which is just a doubling of voice at various, various intervals. Chant is used as a bass line, which an organ or other voices uh, imp improvise above. I was struck, I taught a, a composer here at our school last semester on a, a class, an independent study we did on, on avant-garde composers, uh, Catholic composers in the avant-garde. I could not believe how many of them in the early 20th century has visited the Abbey of Solem. Really? People like Debussy. Uh, who visited Solem and it really inspired some of their really avant-garde experimental music uh, because it was just so so different and so jarring for them. We I often think of like chant as being more maybe conservative or rigid or something else, but uh, but yeah, it's amazing how many uh, really bold progressive composers were were inspired by that and and integrated chant into all kinds of really interesting uh, music. Organ improvisation is a big one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and for those who don't know, can just again, organum is the term to describe the um, open fifths 
It can um, be open fist. There's several styles. Yeah, often the, the simplest form organ organum is just where you have a uh, one. Uh, you have the chant, and then you have a voice doubling it that's not in unison with it, either at the fifth or at uh, I guess the fourth. Uh, we have a lot of folk music that will do this, not maybe at the third or something. Uh, I can't think of it. All my examples would be outdated now, but it would be like the Indigo Girls or something like that, <laughs> where we just kind of harmonize, but we harmonize it in, in parallel motion. You go up, I go, you know, I go up, you go down, I go down at, at, a, at the, same, the same interval. So we still have a tradition of this uh, popular in popular music even, but uh, but, and I think we do because it's just, it works really well. It's simple and very effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I have one more example too I want to give um, of practical ways for instrumentation that also has been working is, you know, in light of COVID-19, of course, there's not really that much public singing at all, um, especially at least in our local diocese. And so we have been using small handbell choirs, meaning three people maximum. Um, so three at a time for handbells and we would do uh, tone clusters with the handbells at certain mm. points just to kind of give that resounding ring. So again, just to use the same Gloria that I was giving an example for, we would probably do something like D, E, A and just those together. So it would be a second and then the, the fifth on top from the root. Wow. And yeah, and so it again, it just kind of gives that, first off, it helps musicians participate, which right now it's so difficult to get our pastoral musicians involved because we can't sing. Um, and not only that, but it, it gives again a, a fresh, it has a very vibrant sound whenever you use those handbells at the beginning of some phrases. Um, it really, it's been very interesting to do. Yeah, and uh, we, we have a similar thing. It's, they're kind of like these clapper things that uh, they're kind of like a bell or a chime or something, but they have a, uh, like, I guess you call it a knocker or something and you like, you whack it and it ends up sounding a little bit like a bell. Mm -hmm. And uh, for things like Christmas and Easter to great effect, but I mean, you kind of can't go wrong. I mean, I, I say experiment away. There's, mm -hmm. uh, there's so many ways to be inspired by chant, whether or not you're doing chant, but just elements of, of chant. So let's talk and, about, let's talk about one more thing too, in terms of um, obstacles and things to consider for modern day pastoral musicians. Let's speak about language and chant. And so of course, um, we, as pastoral musicians so often associate Gregorian chant with Latin. Um, but we know also that chant in the vernacular is also an option. Is that a suitable alternative? I think it absolutely is. And I, I encourage everyone who's listening to, um, to write your own. You know, we're only, I'm only one generation removed from the Second Vatican Council. I think we tend to think of us uh, you know, that, that that was like a long time ago when it's a done deal, but there there's a lot of music still that needs to be written that uh, that responds to to our time uh, and that and that can bring in music from, say, before the council, but uh, but that uh, still needs to be adapted. We don't necessarily have to, like, leave it, you know, behind us. We can we can. Uh, adapt it, but, but that work needs to be done. Father Columba, who is a, a monk of our house who died a few years ago, has quite a few of his own translations of chant available for free on our website. If I can plug those downloads, you can just Google St. Meinrad, M-E-I-N-R-A-D, down, chant downloads, and there's all kinds of free resources 
uh, for the mass in English that's you know, very well researched and based on, on uh, Gregorian melodies. Anthony Ruff has done a number of editions in both Latin and English with all different from neumes to modern notation and square notation, trying to make it as easy and accessible as possible for, for everyone and as adaptable as, as possible. Uh, but even things like using chant melodies, the music term is contrafacts, using a musical melody, but adding new lyrics to it, say for a locally important feast, maybe the dedication of your church or something where you want to, you know, sing the name of your, of your patron. Uh, that's always on the table and you can take an old piece of chant and, and a write your own lyrics to that. And, I, and I, I love the idea of parishes taking it on their own to write some of their own music that's particular for them. That's what monasteries do. And uh, uh, that, uh, that's, a, that's a very, there's a very, very old tradition of, of doing that kind of, of uh, adaptation, those contrafacts mm -hmm. as well. But, uh, but yeah, there's plenty more to be, to be done. And so I say it's a call to arms and an open invitation for, for anybody and everybody to, to get creative. I think too, if, if I were to pick one saint right, right across, you know, it just popped into my head. So I don't know if it's divine intervention or not, but with this year being the year of St. Joseph, I would love if someone wrote a, a new text based on, you know, using a chant melody um, to honor St. Joseph, because Maybe it's just me, but sometimes I really struggle finding enough music honoring St. Joseph, especially for his upcoming feast. And of course this year being the year of St. Joseph. Exactly, you know, and, and this is maybe a different, a different kind of year of St. Joseph than you talk <laughs> about St. Joseph in, in hiding really. And in the way that we've been feeling like we've, we've been living these hidden lives. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, other other saints, Mother Teresa, etc. These are uh, uh, last week we we talked about uh, the the problem. There's some advantages, but the problem of of concentrating only on the earliest sources of chant. What do we do for somebody like Mother Teresa, uh, or or whatever real, new realities we're facing? Uh, we have to keep composing, and we and we always have, and and so. Uh, we have, I think there's a very strong argument to be made that we need to be rooted in tradition and we need to understand as best we, we can the, uh, the whole history of chant, but we, that's, that's not the only story. We also have to, uh, we're, we're part of that story and, and that, that's part we, we are currently writing. So, uh, so again, that's why I think it's so important for people to get creative. And, and I do think, I think often people shelve chant because they think of it as being archaic and old and belonging to another time. And I, uh, I really wanna push back against that. I, I think it's, it's for everyone and it's for all time. And what, what we make of it is, is our call. Well, I will put any musical examples, including the ones from St. Minored in the show notes of this episode. So if Great. you're listening or you're watching, please feel free to go to the show notes at ministrymonday.org because just like what you said, Brother John, the conversation is not over. Good. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks again to Brother John for his time today. As he mentioned in our time together, there is a treasure trove of resources available on this topic for you, the working pastoral musician. Check out the show notes of this episode at ministrymonday.org for free resources from NPM, St. Meinrad Arch Abbey, and more. The recording of Adoro Te Devote was produced by GIA Publications, and our theme music was produced by Aaron Schaus. Today's episode of Ministry Monday was produced by me, Amanda Bruce. That's all for today. With the Spirit's gifts empowering us for the work of ministry, thanks for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday.